Take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to probably a verse that uh, is one of the more familiar verses, especially to the children of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. I've entitled this message, The Blessings of Justification. I actually, when I finished my notes, when I got to the end of it, I'd actually put, I'd not title this one part one, but I don't know whether I'm going to go on with verse two next week. I've, I've been thoughtfully and prayerfully considering John because we, we went through John, the gospel of John, and we got up to chapter 13, and we finished chapter 13, and I didn't go on chapter 14, 15, 16. We've done all of 17, and I'm thinking about maybe going there and starting this next week in John chapter 14 and go verse by verse through those three. If not, we'll come back here and we'll continue. And this, then I'll go back and I'll edit this one out on sermon audio and I'll call it the blessings of justification part one. And then we'll talk about the other blessings and benefits that we have by virtue of our justification in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when you think about this, and I thought about this a long time this week, I preached on uh, Romans 8, 1 in the past. There's a sermon out there on Romans chapter 8, verse 1. This is a completely different message. I'm approaching it from a different different way than I approached that previous message. And I pray the Lord will bless it this morning. But you know, the, the Apostle Paul, and I went back and I read all of it this week before I began to look at Romans chapter 8, verse 1. He had written, and you know, it, it, we break it up. You know, it's, we have chapters, and so the only way I know to express it to you, he had written seven full chapters. But in reality, what is this? This is a letter without chapters, without verses, but thank God we, they broke it down to where I, I could tell you, look at Romans chapter 8, verse 1, you know where I'm going. But he had spent seven full chapters of what is this letter, this epistle to these Roman believers, uh, setting forth very plainly and very concisely and very simplistically, but yet dogmatically, the justification in eternal life is only through and by and based on the blood and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, his obedience to death. That's what those first seven chapters are about in their totality. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I know I've said this before, when you, when you look at it, actually the, the comma actually goes after the justified in the original. Therefore, being justified, comma. By faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But let me read it to you in Young's literal translation. Because this is the actual translation. This is how these words actually are spoken. They're in their tenses and in the, in, in their voices having been declared righteous is the way this is actually written. Not in order to be justified, having been declared righteous, then, because we are justified by faith, we have peace toward God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that original word translated, the Greek word translated being justified in this verse, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, it means to declare or to pronounce one to be just, to be righteous, or to be such as he ought to be. Being declared such as we ought to be. Ought to be how? Before God. Righteous, holy, 
unblameable, unreprovable. And I know if you're a sinner, just like me, you don't feel. That's, that's where we got to get away. We got to get away from feelings and emotions and sentiment. We don't feel righteous. I don't... I wish somebody, well, I don't wish somebody tell me that. I almost said I wish somebody tell me what it feels like to feel righteous. I, I, I don't, I, I, th- I, think I, I think if I actually could feel that, I'd probably look down on you or you'd look down on me. But we'd be filled with self-righteousness if it was something that was something we could tangibly hold on to and look at it and say, well, this is what I'm supposed to look at. Look at me. But here's the thing. How can a just God, and this is the verse that gets stuck in my mind all the time, how can a just God who will by no means clear the guilty, let that sink in, he will by no means clear the guilty, how can he declare those who are guilty, condemned, enemies of God, how can he declare them just and righteous and as they ought to be before him. That's the question of the ages. And I tell you, that's the question that religion's not dealing with. They, they, they can't deal with it because they don't know what it's about. They're out there today telling people how to be good neighbors and be good people and be good citizens and be good church members and do this and do that and keep the law and all those things. Nobody's dealing with this. God requires that for any sinner to be in his presence, they have to be absolutely righteous. How righteous? As righteous as God himself. But here's the thing. If you ask that question, how can God do it? We know he's done it. We know he's done it. How do we know he's done it? He says this, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifies. So somebody's been justified. Somebody's been declared as they ought to be. And see, Paul had made it clear that the only righteousness by which God can be just to justify the ungodly is found in the only righteousness, is found in the accomplished work of his dear son, his people's surety and substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. But that brings you to Romans chapter 7. And at the close of Romans chapter 7, Paul, what's he doing? He's lamenting the present reality of every justified sinner. Every one of them. What is it? That in the flesh, in me, in my flesh, do do we feel this this morning? Yes, we do. We do feel this. In my flesh dwells no good I can remember feeling pretty good about myself in foster vision. Don't you? I, I tell, all I feel now is my failure. I do. How far short I come in everything that I do. Yeah, I mean, think about it. And this is this is a present reality. If God were to enter into judgment with me based on what I've done in the first hour and what I've done so far in this hour. He would be forced, according to strict law and justice, to condemn me. Think about that. That's not just a, a statement made. That's, that's the reality. 
I'm going to tell you, I guarantee you, whatever I've done up to this point, it doesn't equal righteousness. It doesn't render me as I ought to be before God. Listen to what he says. I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing, for to will is present with me, but how to perform it, form that which is good, I don't find. This is the Apostle Paul. This isn't Richard Warmack, but it is Richard Warmack. This, this is a man that wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. This is a man that, under inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, said that he exceeded and excelled every one of the other apostles. And he did. Even Peter. This man, Paul, reproved Peter for Peter's error. And yet, this man, Paul with all the accolades that he had that followed him as the greatest apostle that reached more people than any other, he says, the good I want to do, I don't do. The evil I don't want to do. It's exactly what I find myself doing. Verse 22, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And here's the lament. Oh, wretched man that I am. Not that I was, that I am. Who shall deliver me? And I always miss this, the, the way he phrased this. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And I know I've told you this before, but you know, in Roman times, if you murdered somebody, you know what they did with, with the victim that you murdered? They chained them to you. And you, when you went to bed at night, the person that you murdered was hanging right off your back. When you got up in the morning, they were right there. When you went to eat, Kenny, right there. That's how closely this, the body of this death is, is where is it? It's not out there. I, I, it's, it's tickled me, you know, we, we passed that alcohol resolution here not too long ago in city of Ruston. You'd think Ruston's going to hell in a handbag now, you know. Because <laughs> you know what they think? They think sin's in the bottle. It ain't. Sin's Where? The only way, you could, you could wipe all the alcohol off the planet, get rid of all the drugs, everything that's immoral. You still can't get sin out of this world. The only way you can get sin out of this world, you've got to get us off the world. Or you've got to change us. Totally and completely. And I, that's a lamentable cry. He's, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? But here's the thing. Did, did this knowledge that, that Paul experienced and that all God's redeemed experience and struggle with, does it change how God justifies the ungodly? The answer is absolutely not. Change your attitude toward how God justifies the ungodly. Absolutely not. How do we know that? Because he didn't stop there. He cried, oh, wretched man, but his next words, he said, I thank my God through Christ Jesus my Lord. Remember, he asked the who shall deliver me? In verse 25, what does he do? He tells us who delivered him. I thank my God through Jesus Christ 
my Lord. And that brings to a close all of Paul's arguments about justification. It's sure, it's steadfast, it's certain, and it, it is eternal for the child of God. It will never end. You can never take my justification from me. You understand that? Boy, this is the one that I remember the first email I got when we got online. The guy wrote me over this statement. I'll make it again. Maybe he'll write me back. No amount of sin in this man's life can ever unjustify me. <laughs> People say, oh, my stars. You have just opened the door wide for men to do what they want to do. Well, what, what does he start off with? Well, having established the doctrine of justification in this chapter, Paul begins to set forth the blessed effects of this justification. From the very first stage, what's the very first stage of the effects of this glorious doctrinal truth of justification by the blood and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ? What does it give me? Freedom from condemnation to our final entrance into glory. I said this in that message that I preached several years ago in Romans 8 and 1, and I, I probably stole it from somebody else because there's nothing new under the sun, but it's still true. Paul starts this great chapter, Romans chapter 8. He starts it with a certain promise for all those God justified in Christ Jesus. How did he start it? There is therefore now no condemnation of them that are in Christ Jesus. And he ends this same chapter, just 39 verses later. He ends this same chapter with a certain promise to those same people that, listen, there is no possibility of separation from the love of God. How do you say that? For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature, shall be able to separate me from the love of God. Now listen to the language, the love of God, which is based on the fact that I have loved him back. No, no, no. The love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Where's God love me? He loves me in Christ. Always has. Now you think about this. Because he starts this chapter off, with an unbelievable blessing of graciousness that is freely and richly bestowed upon you and me in Christ. There is is in italic, so in reality, this verse starts off, therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation to them that are one place. Where are they at? They're in Christ. In Christ. I didn't know in myself, and when living with myself every single solitary day and knowing and feeling within myself what Paul described, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? This blessing that God has freely promised me of no condemnation, it fills my soul with the joys of King David. I wrote this down. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within him. I might preach on that next Sunday. 
on Psalm 103. I've never preached on that. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. What are His benefits? Listen, who forgiveth all thine iniquities. How many of them? Folks, this was written thousands of years before I was born. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases. That don't mean I'm not going to have a heart attack. I'm not going to have cancer. That's not The diseases are what kind of disease? Spiritual diseases. The blindness, the deafness, the deadness of our soul. Who redeemeth thy life from destruction. Who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. Who, listen, who satisfieth thy mouth with good things so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. You think about these words. Therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. The word translated therefore means so then or wherefore. In other words, based on what I've said before based on all those things that he's talked about, about that we're not under law, we're under grace, that we've been set free from the law of sin and death. That word translated now means at this present time, right now. Not out there, I have to wait to get to glory right now in this present time. The word translated no means exactly what you think no means. It means no one or nothing. And that word translated condemnation means damnatory sentence. So the promise is this. There is no damnatory sentence for any person that's where? In Christ. And I'd point this out to you too. Because I'd have you to notice Paul didn't say there was not an hidden anything in those which are in Christ Jesus is not condemnable. That, there's a still a whole lot in us that is condemnable, is it not? I mean, I, I think the present reality of that is this. When we sin against our God now, what do we get? What comes our way? When you, if you were to sin today, or you're made aware of sin, what comes into your heart and in your mind? Fresh guilt, Right? And in our own minds, we begin to condemn ourselves. Why? And that's why we're commanded by God through his apostle John. He tells us what? To confess our sins. And he says if we confess our sins, he shows himself like what he was when he first justified us. What, he's faithful and just because what's he already done? He forgives us of all our sins and he cleanses us from all our unrighteousness. So by these words, Paul was teaching them and he's teaching all God's elect in every generation that all those who by God-given faith rest in Christ accomplish work of redemption. His very obedience unto death is their surety and substitute. There's right now nothing or no one that can pronounce a damnatory sentence on them. How can that be? How can that be? You think about this. Even though we're all God's elect, is God's elect born into this world? How are we born? We're born into this world with Adam's sin charged to us. Are we not? Sin imputed to us. Charged to us. 
And in time, as we begin to grow up, what do we reveal? We reveal that by nature, what are we, dead in trespasses and sin? That we're enemies in our minds by wicked works. And we prove ourselves before God's law and God's justice to be condemned and guilty by our disobedience to his revealed will. But you think about this. Christ, our surety, Christ, our surety, has borne all my guilt, all my penalty, and all my condemnation of all my sins and all the elect's sin and has answered every single solitary demand of God's holy law and justice. How can you be so sure? Listen, surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we're healed. All we like sheep are gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. In other words, all the guilt, all the penalty, all the condemnation that I truly deserve and have merited, where did it fall? Fell on my surety. The prophet Isaiah declared in another occasion, he said this, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions. Why did he blot them out? For his own sake. See? And since he's blotted them out for his own sake through his son, what does he do? I will not remember thy sin. Why? He's satisfied. And I tell you what, the Apostle Paul even made it more clear when we get over to the New Testament. He said this, of this blotting out of sins. He said, and all things are of God who hath reconciled us. He, what? he hath reconciled us to himself. How? By Jesus Christ. And hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. The wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. Not imputing, not charging their trespasses unto them. And hath committed unto you, unto us, the word of reconciliation. Now then, we as ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. How? On what basis? For he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Think about the surety. Anybody ever tell you about a surety when you went... You ever, I never. I remember seeing the pictures of David in the in the little slingshot. I remember hearing about Samson. I remember hearing about the ark. But I I never remember anybody in all my days in false religion telling me anything about a surety and the importance of what surety is. But not only the the surety and the importance of surety, but the work of the surety. The first time the word surety. The word translated surety is actually some more words that are still translated by the English word surety, but not by the meaning of the surety that we're talking about here. The first time this word's translated surety in the Old Testament, it was used, remember when, when Joseph's brethren had went down and he kept one of the brothers there? And he sent them back and he told them, he said, y'all go down there and y'all bring, they made him aware there was another child, Benjamin, right? And he said, you go down there, and if you don't bring that brother back up here, I'm not going to turn this one loose. 
So they go back and they tell Israel, they tell Jacob, and Jacob's just, he says, first Joseph's gone, and now, uh, which, one, which was the one that got left down there? Anybody remember? I forgot. It slipped my mind. Well, it don't make no difference. Here, one of them's down there. It ain't Reuben, I don't think, because I think Reuben's, a, it might have been Reuben. Huh? I don't know. One of them's down. He said, he said I've, I've lost Joseph. Now I've lost this other brother. You're going to take Benjamin from me as well? Judah stepped to the forefront. And listen to Judah's language. He told his daddy, Israel, send the lad with me. You let me take him. And I will arise and we'll go that we may live and not die, both we and thou and thy little ones. In other words, he's saying, I'm going down there and I'm going to do the work, Dad. And when I go down there, you know what? All of us are going to be filled. All of us are going to be received everything we need. He says this, I will be surety for him. There's the word. I, the three, three, four English words, I will be surety for him, and my hand shalt thou of my hand shalt thou require him. If I bring him not unto thee and set him before thee, then let me bear the blame forever. There's a rule of interpretation in scripture called the law first mentioned, where the first time a word is used in the scriptures throughout the remainder of the scriptures, that begins to set the definition of what that word actually means as it's used in every other occasion. So when we're talking about a surety, what are we saying when Christ is our surety? Christ is the believer's surety, was completely responsible himself, completely responsible for the guilt, penalty, and condemnation for the sins of all those given to him in the everlasting covenant of grace, were their punishment imputed or charged to him, his righteousness imputed or charged to them. And this is the thing. The believer in Christ Jesus is in a state of complete justification before God as they're in Christ Jesus having his righteousness charged to them based on his work as our surety and substitute. But then Paul gives us a, a telling clue concerning all those who can never be condemned, seeing they're in Christ. Notice what he says next. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation of them that are in Christ Jesus. And boy, these words have tripped up a bunch of folks, which walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. I tell you, most in false religion, they use the end of that one verse. to try and teach that Paul was telling you and me and sinners in every generation that save sinners, they do not practice or they do not walk in the flesh, but what do they do? They walk in whatever definition of the spiritual walk the denomination says. Now listen to me. If you go back and you look at Romans chapter 7 and then you go over and you look in Romans chapter 9, Paul could not, hey, listen, he could not be stating that the sinner is freed from 
absolutely all possibility of condemnation, he can't be saying that they're completely freed from sin. How do I know that? You think about what he had just stated. He'd said, I know that in my flesh dwells no good thing. He says, for I know that in me, that in my flesh dwelleth no good thing, for the will's present with me, but how to perform, I don't find it. For the good that I would, I do not, and the evil that I do not, that's exactly what I do. But in Romans chapter 7, he made this statement. For when we were in the flesh, if he's saying if we, when we were in the flesh, what's he saying now? We're not in the flesh. We were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. Well, hold on now. When Paul wrote that, Paul was still living in a fleshly body, wasn't he? Still walking about as a man on this planet. But he couldn't be talking about his personal character and conduct. That can't be what he's talking about. What did he mean? What did the Holy Spirit mean when he moved Paul to write these words to those people who have no possibility of condemnation? Did he tell them that they could, there was no possibility of condemnation so they could walk how they wanted to? Is that what he was telling them? No. You know better than that. I'm, I'm convinced the more that, that I look at this and the more that I think about it and the more that I studied it, you know what he's talking about? He's talking about the life of faith. The just, the righteous, how do we live? We live by faith. Faith in what? In the righteousness by which we're justified. And see, this life of faith, what's it characterized by? It's characterized by living under an abiding sense that what are we? We're wholly justified in Christ, and we have absolutely no confidence in the flesh. We do not trust ourselves. And here's the thing. There's no pharisaical righteousness mingled in this walk. And there's no being puffed up in your fleshly mind thinking that you're something now that you weren't before. I think a, a perfect example of what it is to walk after the flesh and walk after the spirit, I think our Lord spoke a parable that tells us exactly what it is to walk after the flesh and walk after the spirit. And you know what the, what the parable was? It's the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. You think about that. The Pharisee, you know what he's an example of? He's an example of what it is to walk after the flesh. Here it is. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. As this publican I fast twice a week. I give tithes of everything that I possess. What was he doing? He says those that are not condemned, they don't walk that way. Because this guy, by his own words, what does he say and makes a difference between life and death? Give me life because I hadn't done all these things and I have done these other things. But the publican, on the other hand, that poor, guilty sinner that wouldn't so much as enter into the temple, into the outer court of the stand, and he smites upon his breast, and what does he say? It says, and the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes into heaven but smote on his breast saying, God be merciful. And I know I've told you this. That word merciful means propitious. Be my mercy seat. God be merciful to me a sinner. Think about what Christ said of both these men. I tell you this man, 
the one that says, Lord, you've got to be my mercy Savior. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalts himself, what happens? They're based. And everybody that humbles himself, humbles himself under what? Submit it. Remember what Romans 10 says? They going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves, humbled themselves to the righteousness that's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. But you also got to remember how our Lord prefaced that parable. How did he, before he spoke those words, did he say? And he spake this parable unto certain that trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And what did those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, what did they do? They despised others. You hear the contempt in that Pharisee's word? I'm not like this man. I can't tell you how many men and women I've had in my lifetime tell me, oh, I know I'm sinned, but I hadn't sinned that bad. Well, you tell me what that bad is. All I know from the scriptures is the wages of sin. And it doesn't say sins. The wages of sin, death. So tell me what that bad is. That's why we read the call to worship. We read Philippians chapter 3. I'm not going back there and read it, but you think about what Paul, Paul said. If anybody's got any reason to have any confidence in the flesh, can put any hope in what they've done, he said, I've surpassed them all. And then he gives that long list of what he had done. And then when he gets to the end of that list, what does he do? He turns around and says, you know what that list is worth? Matter of fact, he goes further than that. He's, he calls it loss. And then later, like we read, what did he call it? Dumb. Human excrement. I did not, no religious people think of their religious sincerity and zeal and effort the way Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, looked on his. They can't. That's all they know. That's all they've been taught. He also said to those that call it Colossus, let no man beguile you of your reward. Our reward is Christ. In voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up, and here's that word again, in his fleshly mind. See, if you want to understand what Paul's saying here, to be in the flesh is to be unregenerate, lost. To be in the spirit is what? A life toward God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Not holding the head. The head's who? Christ. From which all the body by joints and bands being nourished, being, having nourishment, ministered, knit together, increaseth into the increase of God. All our, all our wisdom, all our righteousness, all our sanctification, and all of our redemption. And by redemption is our resurrection is where? All the promises of God are in Christ. Yea, amen. All those who rest in Christ's blood and righteousness alone, you know what? There's no possibility of condemnation. Absolutely none. And I tell you, what a blessing it is to know that the Lord will not charge any sin to me ever. I bet I quote this verse to myself two or three times every day of my life. 
Blessed is he whose sins are forgiven. Blessed is he whose transgressions, I got it backwards. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven. Blessed is he whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man on whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity and in whose spirit is no guile, no hypocrisy. I tell you, that's a sinner that's found in Christ. We sing it. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And I tell you what, so many people sing this next part of this verse and they never think about what it means. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on that name. What's the name? Do you know his name, sir? The Lord our righteousness. This is the name wherewith he shall be called, Jeremiah 23, verse 6. And this is the name wherewith she shall be called, Jeremiah 33, 16. What are we called? Same thing he's called. The Lord our righteousness. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed. Lord bless you. Keep you till we see you next Lord's Day.